your property podcast today is the 14th of october 2021 my name is michelle kearns your host as always and today we've got kazim Balogan with us hi kazim hi how are you doing you okay great thank you yeah great to have you on so a little bit about yourself um you're more widely known as your online name property by kz and uh, very strong social presence as well um you've been pre- developing your career uh, in property and that began in London over seven years ago um, where your passion for creating homes drove you to complete deals in excess of eight figure on eight figures on the GDV which is really impressive you've also been featured on homes under the hammer and you've been acquiring and flipping properties in London to a really high standard so um, your ultimate goal is to make property investment more successful so we're going to have a deep dive into that and get to know a bit about uh, your journey in property so for people who don't know who you are um, and haven't come across you yet can you just start off with a bit of background about how you got started in property yeah um I think it's sort of I almost went full circle between a conventional and non-conventional journey into property in that I'd always worked, um, sort of started out like, you know, paper round. And even then I kind of realized that I was into sort of the entrepreneurial working for yourself kind of thing, because even with my paper round, um, rather than just take the standard money that was offered, I said to myself, do you know what, at 13, went down to the local, it was called Sainsbury Saver Center at the time, the big ones that had where you could print your business cards for a fiver, printed business cards, went to all the local takeaway shops, and said, look, I've already got this distribution network in place, uh, but we can add your leaflets in, obviously, for a fee. And basically just trying to, at that point, sort of optimise my time. Um, But then I think naturally what happens is we get sort of bogged down with coursework and assignments and get busier. So um, worked in sales for a long time and phones for you, um, which I think really helps just from a confidence perspective. Um, Went to university actually dropped out of my first university because I think it wasn't necessarily the right time for me um, which I think a lot of people make that mistake of just going because they feel like everybody else is going and you're almost following the herd rather than looking at time and place but I think actually failing is what made me realize that I actually want to do this now because I didn't like the idea of failing so went back to university um, but the sort of the side of that was whilst I was at that second university which was London South Bank studying economics I went to Egypt sort of 20, 2009, 2010 and discovered Shisha. And they always sort of say like, I really liked it, kind of really immersed myself in the culture and realized that, you know, this is something that I like. And they say, if you want to start a business, it should be something you've got a passion for. So started a Shisha business called Shisha Loco. Um, started literally just a couple of Shishas going around to bars and nightclubs because there was a smoking ban at the time. Um, obviously it did just come into place a little bit before and they were making these really nice outdoor smoking areas to cater to their their clientele and we, we sort of just said look we can provide cheese just to give you a usb so we weren't paying them anything but we were making really good money sort of thousand percent markup um got into some of the biggest nightclubs in the uk or with the biggest which was proud in the o2 at the time and then into a load of other different places ended up doing festivals that was making sort of four thousand pounds a night opened a sort of shisha and cocktail bar with a license whilst at university as well. Um, And then took basically, 
that capital that I made there um, to go and do my first flip, sort of got into property or decided to go and start doing, getting into property because I'd, I'd, I'd gone down the education route and worked in the city for about six months and just really realized it wasn't for me. Um, so my first ever deal was, yeah, I, I wasn't working at the time, so I wasn't able to get your typical residential mortgage. Didn't really have bad credit, but didn't really have credit at all as such. So my broker described the first purchase as like a baptism of fire because my first purchase of a bridging loan at about 22, 23. Wow. Um, and it was an auction purchase as well. <laughs> so there was there was a lot of sort of a lot on the table, but effectively that was like my litmus test or my proof of concept um, to show that what I'd sort of looked into had worked um, and then repeated that model pretty much. So you say that quite casually that you took the you know the money that you'd made from the business and put it into property um, and you ended up with this auction property as your first deal so um, with the bridge in and you know how did that how did you know to go into property you know if you had family in property or like what was the, got, what the steps got, uh, together? Some, some family that have done property in the past um, friends as well and you know, other people that I'd seen have done properties. So before I actually did my first deal, I'd sort of done project management indirectly for other property developers to start with. I just started really just just going to sites of people that I knew were doing developments, larger scale developments, small developments, and just effectively offering my time to just say, look, I'm happy to go and get materials or do X, Y, and Z. If you can let me... um, be involved basically or you can let me sort of just just learn and initially that's what I did it wasn't it wasn't any money I was making out of it but I was just effectively offering my time because there's this really weird thing that when we're younger we have almost all the time in the world we don't realize it because we don't know what it's like to be busy Um, but as we get older we get jealous of the idea of having time and when you talk to a lot of people about what does success mean for you it means time and flexibility so when people at a starting point maybe don't have that capital or don't have the expertise, you actually have something really beneficial, which is time. And for a lot of people that want to get into property, I would say leverage that, like leverage your time, particularly if you know you can drive and you can be helpful. That's why I managed to kind of make myself an asset to somebody who was, you know, way further along on their journey than I was. Um, and actually, before I did my first deal, effectively after I did some running around and built a relationship with this particular investor I actually managed to do something where I said look on the next one it was like a the same site but you know sort of almost like a phase two like a mini phase two in terms of like a secondary planning said look I'll happily sort of project manage and meet with people and xyz if I can have like a percentage of like you know the, the profits the deal ended up going really well which meant I got a little bit more and again, that also helped with startup capital, helped with my confidence to be able to say, look, I can probably do this myself now. Right. Yeah, that's, you know, it's a great way in for people who don't have that experience. Like you say, you've still got some value to bring in terms of the time or the resources or just the enthusiasm um, and, and and research. So, uh, you know, it's worth people who haven't, you know, that they, they haven't started yet to kind of look at it that route, I think. Um that's a great example there. So this first project that you did on the bridge, um, how does, you know, did you work with an investor on that and how did you find it? Looking back, was it, was it a good, you know, a great deal or was it just one to get you started and cut your teeth? 
Um, I think it, it wasn't a great deal, but it was a great experience and it was effectively paid experience because in hindsight, I would have done the deal to break even just to learn the ropes and understand the processes. So the fact that probably, and again, I feel like because it's so long ago, people ask me the numbers on it and I'm like, <laughs> I say them roughly and I probably said it five or six times and they probably all be slightly different. So some, at some point someone's going to chip it and be like, you bought this property for five different prices and so on, but roughly we paid anywhere from sort of, I'd say 30 to 40,000 pounds profit um, from the deal. Well, yeah, uh, obviously first deals, you know. Yeah, no, which is good. And I think, you know, you have to play to your strengths. I've been really successful in terms of, or really fortunate in regards to the flips that I've done. Like Touchwood um, never lost money. But I think a lot of that has come from, you know, when you sometimes you hear a phrase and it just sticks with you forever. And the phrase, I can't remember who first said it to me, but you hear it all the time. But it was, you don't make your money when you sell. You make it when you buy. Yeah. Buy at the right price and or buying something that has the ability to add that value. And that, that's really stuck with me. And I think, you know, as, as a learning curve from that process, sort of seeing that a few things went wrong and a few things, you know, we had to overpay for and I made some mistakes. Like the funniest thing was, obviously, I was excited. It was my first deal. And um, it was in Sydenham, so SE26, reasonable area, not, you know, it's not Chelsea, it's not, but it's still London, still reasonable area, um, quite quite nice now in particular. Um, but I just wanted to do everything. So like we had like these blue like LED like sort of lights under the kitchen and then in the bathroom behind the mirror like by the bath was a TV that I bought off you know like I think it was Amazon or eBay at some point and it was it was like just sort of trying to work out the market and work out finishing touches and what people do and don't want because I thought I was amazing I thought I was you know best developer in history putting a TV in the bathroom we actually had the feedback from one of the, the viewers who was just like yeah like I loved it but that tv in the bathroom just pointless and a waste of money and the agent was like yeah you don't have to use it it's like well, yeah but they want more money now because they put a tv in and it was just like sort of so the idea of learning your market and your target demographic was a really good learning curve from the project and how did you you know what how, how did that shape your next deal and doing more research or on uh, those target markets yes I think just looking into yeah like literally like who what are my demographic going to be like who's likely to buy this property like what am i what am i building what are the ceiling prices really working out where i can spend money and i guess understanding like your pound for pound for pound value return particularly when you get to second fixed stage um and then i think also looking at you know how have i how have i financed the deal what's what are my finance costs what will a quick what a quick sale save me in regards to cost of finance? Looking at the time value of money, um, and that really helped. In regards to the deal as a whole, I think it was basically did they start ones where they were particularly just looking at reconfiguration. So you know it was a relatively buoyant market back then as well. So prices were still quite high, um, or they were they were going up on sort of a monthly yearly basis to the point where you're not sort of sure where stuff's going to stack so it was still a case of okay you know it was hard to find a deal but how can we actually just add value how can we and that principle effectively the value in a deal coming from maybe the potential that other buyers have missed so 
the initial strategy was targeting one-bedroom flats above sort of um, 50 square meters, 50, 60 square meters that could potentially be converted into a two-bedroom flat without extensions, without loft conversions, just through internal reconfiguration. So making an open plan kitchen living room or moving the bathroom between the bedrooms where there's like a, not a requirement for natural light. And then, you know, we just realized that worked and effectively just repeated that model. And there's, you know, there's so many properties out there. If you've got the time, if you focus on a specific area, um, so I always specialize. So that was my initial model. The area was very focused geographically, which meant if people were bringing me potential deals, I could quickly, you know, tick them off yes or no if they work. Um, and so I could look at a lot more deals and analyze a lot more than a short period of time. Yeah, that sounds like um, just a great a great way to do business. And, you know, it sounds obvious, but for a lot of people, they are more open to, you know, they might say commercial units or HMOs. And there's so many different variations of those. But it's great to actually hear that you've got a very specific criteria and not just the criteria for the floor plan of the, you know, the, the, the property itself, but actually you're going to have if you're working with investors you need to have those numbers really tight Mm -hmm. so as you say it makes it easier to do that due diligence and the 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 high level um checks and and analyze the deals as they come in so you know just digging deep on that working with the investor side of things you know how tight was that criteria in terms of what the profit margin needed to be the end value the um you, you know all the costs involved uh was that so with, with investor finance um i always worked on a debt basis as opposed to um, equity which meant that it's a lot easier to manage it's just a cost of finance effectively um and it's a lot easier to manage and as long as you know you work it backwards you start with your gdv take out the cost of your investor finance the cost of your refurb the cost of your principal finance your fees, et cetera. And then we would then have a target um, ROI and return on capital employee that we would be looking at. Um, and because we were adding value a lot of the time, you know, we weren't just doing straightforward refurb flips. Effectively, we were obviously still securing those properties on the basis of just a refurb. Um, and then, but because we were adding something additional in terms of the reconfiguration, ended up with some really good numbers. Uh, And I think because we were focusing geographically, it meant that we could do more deals and specific types of deals. Um, And the more you do effectively, there's, you know, that saying that luck favors the proactive. So the more deals you're doing, the more you're putting yourself out there, the more opportunities you have to get lucky. And I think a great example was um, another deal. I I promise I don't only work in Sydney, but it was in Sydney as well, funnily enough, um, that I bought this ground floor flat at auction. Uh, and it was like £205,000 purchase price, um, had investor finance at the time, think of about 10% per annum, um, spent twenty five pounds to £30,000 and sold it for £300,000 um, within sort of eight months. But while we were there, we just happened to get talking to the guys upstairs who said that they were looking to sell, ended up buying their flat for the same amount. Um, but that one did a loft conversion, spent about £70,000 and didn't have to have investor finance for that because had just made the money from the previous deal, sold that one for £460,000 within, again, sort of eight months, uh, making over 100% return on investment. Um, 
So it was like a really good deal, but would never have got that and easily could have passed off on that first deal because the ROI potentially wasn't amazing. It was just that the market was moving quite quickly. Um, so I think it's a good example of how just being proactive and, you know, looking at time value of money because we could have been always waiting for that unicorn magic deal, perfect deal where yeah. you, know, you, you it's really safe, you're guaranteed to make a load of money. Um, but if we would have done that and would have sort of been stuck in that analysis paralysis looking for the perfect deal, then we never would have had the fortune to come across the, the next one. Yeah, I think it's a really important point you make about that unicorn deal of some people just hold out too long and then they spend six months, they haven't done anything, they haven't earned any money. And, you know, whereas they could have, if they'd have been a bit more open, but there's a, um, you know, you've got to kind of know your boundaries, I guess, of what, you know, what you're looking for. So um, obviously if those unicorn deals come along, then fantastic. And, and that's what we, we all, you know, they're the case studies we share because they're inspiring and, you know, we can share what is possible. Um, what I'm curious about is on the other side, whereas what is the, you know, what was the minimum amount that you were willing to kind of, what's, um, a, what's a, what's a good enough deal? Where do you draw the line in terms of the ROI? I've always, I get confused with ROI, even though I'm supposed to be great at numbers because of my background, I get confused with ROI and um, return on capital employed, but effectively looking at um, sort of return on capital employed, looking at sort of a minimum of 25% if there's no planning, 35% with planning. Um, early on was probably skating on, I'd do maybe something slightly under 20% just because yeah. I wanted to get a deal done. But I think obviously you have to be safe and you have to have, you know, your contingency budget and your what if, but there's some things that the long-term value outweighs the money. So I, I've managed to keep a consistent team of builders for eight plus okay. years and bring a lot of them in-house because even though maybe it, it wasn't the ideal deal, what it actually meant was I kept the same team busy, you know, worked with the same people, built a better team, a better power team. Um, and that in the long term saved me a lot of money as well. And kind of, it's obviously quite difficult sometimes to actually put a, you know, sort of a number down to some of those factors. But in reality, if, you know, you can retain a good build team, that may add on 10% to your, you know, return on investment down the line. When you annualize like how well you've done, just because the idea of that money sitting in the bank and not earning you any money, we've really got to look at it from a percentage perspective because we're not family offices of unlimited capital. There's a limit of how much you know we, we of money that we have, so we have to use these funds as efficiently as possible. Yeah, and, and just on that note about the builders, then, so how did you find it? Because obviously, you know, to to say you've got builders that you can rely on for a lot of people that's worth a lot of the profit yeah, exactly. just in itself for the peace of mind and the you know and, and being able to look at the next deal and the next deal after that knowing that you've got people there ready that you know the, that you can trust so how we did you fall lucky in finding a great builders from day one or was that more of a trial and error I think yeah there's, there's definitely a lot of trial and error I highly recommend like you know personal recommendations um, but again, my, my thing is if I find somebody that's good, like we want to support each other and work together. So if you're good and I can 
you know, even outside of my own development, I would take on little project management roles where I knew I was pretty much breaking even, but on the basis, look, I wanted to keep the team busy and keep them working with me. So I think there's always a bit of give and take because you can't just expect for you to always be making all the money. If you want people to kind of rely and, and, and trust you and stick with you, you've also got to kind of feed the machine and keep everybody busy. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, in in terms of working with the builders on the projects, were there any challenges that came up? And if so, how did you deal uh, with them? I think, you know, early on, there's some people that I used that in hindsight, you know, I, you know, I wouldn't use now, but again, it was um, budgets at the time and, you know, learning curves. Um, I think I've sort of made a joke that to start with, I was like 20% a property developer and 80% a PA to my various different trades like you know where you've got to be do you know that you have to deal with this person like conflict resolution like we don't like working together on site well I'm not going to be here when he's here and you know I did feel like a bit of a teacher and also coming from a semi-corporate background the idea of not just being able to CC in your builder's manager um, was a, a learning curve in itself um but I think, you know, just I've always been quite a people person. And I think just understanding the trades, like you can't just take a one size fits all. So just be, if you come from a corporate background, you can't just come and think, right, I've emailed everybody. That's it. My job's done. Everybody will report back to me at 5 p.m. Like I'll be on the phone. I'll be on site all the time. That's the other thing I realized, like being on site pretty much every other day. It's not this financial freedom hands off you become a property developer you've got a bit of money you put it down and everybody does the work for you and just brings you the profits at the end you do have to be there um i used i'm not particularly good at anything when it comes to building like you know i tried my hand at a bit of tiling and a bit of plastering and some painting but i realized my only real forte was in a demolition at the starting point and probably i'm not too bad with a dustpan and brush and sweeping up the site but i would just be around and the fact that, you know, I'm the person paying you, but I'm also the person sweeping up after you and being there meant that kind of everybody worked that bit harder. And I think was why we got some good value out of, out of the trades and why we still work together now. Yeah, probably a blessing in disguise that, you know, you know, good at the plumbing or whatever, because yeah. uh, you focus on what you do best now and, um, and building the portfolio and like, you know, you've got more time to to look for more deals and speak with investors and uh, have more, I guess, higher value tasks. So um, it, it sounds like you've got, a, you know, a, a good balance there between both. And what, so, you know, fast forward to today then, mm. and where are you up to in, in terms of your portfolio uh, so and what's next? I'm sort of very, very random. Like, so I've done, like I had like a specific focus, which I did and then I tried a bit of everything. So I've, you know, I've done, sort of your luxury HMOs like six ensuite rooms I've you know done commercial to residential I've done ground up new builds um sort of like seven seven figure property I've done flat conversions um yeah like pretty much loft space deals little, little bit of everything um but I think I in terms of risk I would say naturally I'm quite risk adverse um, and I look at kind of trying to play play quite safe. And um, so I've just found strategies that worked. Also, I've, I've realized and from conversations with, you know, people that have gone way bigger, when I look at my ROIs in comparison, they're still like, they're still literally just smashing. We've done loads of 100% return on investments. 
I think when, when I looked at my deals over the last sort of three or four years, they were 50% plus like across, across the board um, between everything we've done. So I think my focus at the moment is conversions. So sort of during the stamp duty holiday, bought four new properties, um, going to be building out, I think it's 21 units, um, some conversions and one is a full demolition of a bungalow and um, they're, they're um, going to build five new flats. So that's sort of my focus over the next couple of years. Um, and I don't know, like, I don't necessarily have a massive drive to go into like doing massive projects just because there's a lot more risk and if I can make the money without because at the moment I don't have any investors I raised about a million pounds worth of investor finance it's all been repaid and the moment just work um, sort of self-sustained and taking on a partner as you go bigger a lot is more difficult to offer debt and most people want equities you're giving away you know more of a, more of the pie um, the deals take a lot longer so again when I'm looking at just like my straightforward annualized all right at the moment the increased risk doesn't I don't think the increased reward matches um I've got a lot of sort of passion projects or things that I want to work on there was one thing you got wrong in my intro actually it wasn't making property investment more successful it was making it more accessible um, right so I've just recently started sponsoring uh, most wanted football team which are a London-based football team that they're doing amazing. They've literally won like every age group. They won the London Cup. They've done really well. They've had players sign for premiership football teams. But um, so I wanted to kind of match my energy with a passion to teach um, in regards to financial literacy from a young age. So we're going to be sponsoring them, rolling out like a financial literacy course across the, um, the club and use that as kind of like to see if that works because Potentially, these are young boys, professional athletes that could go on to earning exponential amounts of money, but they don't necessarily have the structure in place to allow them to invest that as efficiently as possible. We see stats to say like 70% of professional footballers go bankrupt 10 years after playing football, um, which kind of want to change and work with because it's an element of almost vertical integration of, you know, helping some of the youth in terms of financial literacy and then also those that go on to earn a lot of money um, helping them to reinvest as well yeah it, it sounds like you've got to a point and I think it's it's quite common with people who um, you know did, did have build these portfolios over time <clears throat> where you get to a point where actually you assess well why am I doing this and you know it's not about necessarily chasing the big deals next time it's about the lifestyle it's about you know the bigger goals and looking at um as you said your kind of passion projects there so um so that that sounds really exciting and uh, you know having those being able to share those skill sets with people that you know the the young ones coming up that they don't get taught this in school um you know is phenomenal so that sounds like really exciting so yeah so where can people learn more about what you're up to um so we are on the instagram primarily but also switching over to a lot of youtube now it's all property by kazi so all one word and no spaces and then k-a-z-y um loads of videos in terms of some of the young boys that we're working with we take them out so they're going to have their own little sub channel where if you've got kids that are interested, they can learn from kids, which I think is often better. Um, also, just sort of day in the life of a property developer, site tours, site visits, 
um, Q&A. So loads of good stuff if you're interested in that. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, we'll put links to those in the show notes. And, uh, you know, just to kind of wrap up, is there any advice that you give to people who are just starting out and they, um, you know, not sure where to start or getting that kind of confidence to make that first step? Um, I, I would say in terms of starting out or anything that you want to achieve, you, you've got to have a goal. And I liken it to trying to start running. If you want to run 3K or 5K or whatever the distance is, because you've got an end goal, even when your legs start to get tired or your, your, you know, your, your heart is beating, you can keep going because you have that clock maybe saying, okay, you've done one kilometer, you've done two kilometers, you're 60% of the way there. But if you just try and run with no real end goal and you just try and get started, it's a lot easier for when you get tired to give up. So I just say set those goals, whether they're long-term goals or those micro achievable goals on a weekly, monthly basis, but have a goal and just work towards it. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, we will be sharing all the links in the show notes as well and looking forward to following you and your success uh, with the with the young group there as well. So all the best with that. Thank you. Appreciate you having me on. <laughs> great well thanks very much and for the people who are listening to the podcast if you are not yet a subscriber to the magazine please click the link in the show notes for your first free trial and we will see you next time thanks guys take care